how we respond to the Word of God reveals how we regard the God of the Word. Imagine with me, what if the Lord had never entrusted His sacred words into the English language? How would we respond upon hearing those ancient words in our native tongue for the very first time? This morning, I want to introduce you to the Kim Yaw community located in Southeast Asia. This Indonesian people group numbers only about 35 individuals. And yet, in March of 2010, for the first time, they received the New Testament in its entirety in their native tongue. Can you imagine how they responded? They responded with shouts of joy, worship, celebration, music, dancing, prayers unto the Lord, tears of joy that streamed down their faces. As the airplane that held the copies of the New Testament in their own native language rounded the green forested landscape about to land on the narrow dirt airstrip, you would have thought that on that airplane there was a rock star. And at some level you'd be right. For there was a celebrity. And the words of the Rock of Ages was found in printed copies upon that plane. And as the plane landed and the pilot opened the door, the people gathered around it eager to get a copy of God's word in their hands, in their language. And for the first time ever, they were able to read the old, old story of how a Savior came from glory. Can you imagine what it would be like to have the Bible for the first time ever in your native language? Sometimes we don't think about these scenarios because we have so many copies of the Bible at home and on our phones and our computers and our iPads, even the pew in front of us. And sometimes... Our familiarity with the Bible leads to complacency. But let me remind you this morning that how we respond to the Word of God reveals how we regard the God of the Word. The truth of that statement is no better personified than in Nehemiah chapter 8. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. I want to read the 12 verses in their entirety in your hearing. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 12. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 8. Allow me to begin at verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the scribe, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right 
stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshelam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbate, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The book of Nehemiah can be divided into two parts. The first part is chapters 1 to 7. The second part is chapters 8 to 13. In the first part, chapters 1 to 7, we find the description of the city of God being rebuilt. In chapters 8 to 13, the second part, we find the description of the people of God being rebuilt. Friends, it is one thing to rebuild the city of God. It's something totally different to rebuild the people of God. It's one thing to meet physical needs. It's another thing altogether to meet spiritual needs. When you and I come to Nehemiah chapter 8, they are now at a crossroads. Nehemiah understands that they are now entering some dangerous territory. The reason it's dangerous is because they have just come off that tremendous successful event of rebuilding the wall, refortifying the city in only 52 days. This was a tremendous feat. Only God could have helped them do this. And Nehemiah realized that if we're going to rebuild not just the city of God, but also the people of God, we've got to rebuild the people of God with a renewed commitment to the word of God. And Nehemiah understood that they're now entering dangerous times. The dangerous times in your life are not troubled times. No, troubled times tend to create people that are dependent on the Lord. The most dangerous time in your life, spiritually speaking, is not after a setback, but rather after a success. 
It's when you feel invincible. It's when you are on the top of the mountain, when everything is going your way. That's when the child of God better watch out because that is a dangerous time. It's when you just aced the chemistry test. It's when you were just named the captain of the cheerleading squad. It's when you got in your college of choice. It's when you got married, when you started a family, when you landed that great job, when you received that much sought after promotion at work. It's when you became a grandparent. It's when you entered into retirement. When life is going well, when things are relatively comfortable, that's when you've got to watch out. Because a dangerous time for the child of God is not in the moment of setback but rather the moment of success. Because if you're not careful, that success can go to your head. You can become arrogant or complacent. This is what Nehemiah was concerned about, for he knew that they had just done a tremendous feat by rebuilding the wall in 52 short days. So we read in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, that Nehemiah the governor called for a Bible conference, and he enlisted the help of the greatest preacher at that time, the priest named Ezra, to be the keynote speaker. Nehemiah knew that if we are going to build God's people, they must be built on a renewal of commitment to the Word of God. It is Warren Wiersbe who writes, that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cleanse the lives of the people of God. We have to have a renewed commitment to God and His Word. For how we regard the Word of God reveals how we regard the God of the Word. It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, as you look back in church history, the most decadent periods of time always correlate to the time when the proclamation of God's word is on decline. Whenever God's word and the proclamation of it is on decline, it leads to decadent times, uh, times of evil and wickedness throughout all of church history. If you've ever asked the question, will God ever send a sweeping revival across our community, across our state, and across our land ever again? Will he ever do like he did in the colonial days by giving not one great awakening, but two great awakenings? Will God ever move in a mighty way like he did in the revivalistic evangelistic period of the mid-20th centuries when people were coming to Christ left and right and my answer is that whenever there is an unapologetic priority the proclamation of God's word God responds in revival but when there is not an unapologetic commitment and priority to the God of the word and the word of God then he will not sweep across this land see in this day of Nehemiah chapter 8 the governor understood if we're going to rebuild the city, that's one thing. But if we're going to rebuild the people of God, that's something else. In order to rebuild the city, you've got to have certain material. In order to rebuild the people of God, you've got to have a foundational material. That foundational material has to be the word of God. So friends, how we respond to the word of God reveals how we regard the God of the word. So in this passage of 12 verses, there are at least two 
appropriate responses to God and his word. First, they were attentive to the word of God. It's right there in the text, verse 3. They were attentive to the word of God. We are told it was the first day of the seventh month. Don't get confused. Their seventh month does not correlate with our seventh month. Nehemiah is not telling us it was July the 1st. No, their seventh month more correlates with our January, the first month of the year. Nehemiah, in a very strategic way, said, listen, this is the time of renewal. This is the time of recommitment. This is the time of making resolutions. So on this day, the very first day of our brand new year, we're going to have a Bible conference. We're going to have a summit meeting. And we're going to meet and we're going to hear from God and his word through the preacher named Ezra. 50,000 people showed up. You know that because in the previous chapter of Nehemiah chapter 7, he gives us a census of the number of people that returned to the sacred city following the exile, and it was in excess of 50,000 individuals. And Nehemiah tells us in the opening lines of chapter 8 that they assembled as one man. Even though there was great numeric diversity, there was tremendous unity among the people of God. They assembled as one person. I know they were 50,000 strong, but they gathered as if they were one person, one mind, one heartbeat. They were completely united. This seems to be a portrait of what Jesus will pray for in his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, some 480 years later, when Jesus will pray for all believers, that's you, that's me, all believers, that we may have complete unity. Jesus said, as I and the Father are one and completely united, let our people, let all believers be completely united. Beloved, the greatest obstacle to the mission of the church is disunity. The greatest obstacle to us not fulfilling the Great Commission is disunity. The greatest obstacle to keeping people from being effective in evangelism is disunity. The greatest obstacle, the greatest hindrance from keeping lost people to come to faith in Jesus Christ is the disunity that sometimes resides within the very people of God, the body of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus himself. Where there is disunity, great division erupts and there is a great hindrance to the work of God. What we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is what Jesus will pray for in John chapter 17. Let there be great unity. And the reality is, is that the church can be divided on just about anything. And this ought not to be. We ought not to be divided or disunited. We ought to be a people that have complete unity on the work and the will of God. Just about anything can divide us. Let's just think back for, oh, about 16 months. We don't have to go very far back into the history books to see examples of division within the body of Christ, even here and throughout the country, throughout the world. I mean, think back. One of the things this pandemic has done is it has been a dandy tool in the hand of the adversary in an attempt to divide the church. I mean, just stop and think about it. 
I mean, the church has been divided over 16 months when it comes to issues of masks and mandates and vaccines, right? I mean, we have strong opinions on a whole host of things, and it would seem as if all these things have become tests of fellowship. Friends, this cannot be. We are not united on political issues. We're not divided or not united on particular mandates. We are united on the scripture and the mandate and the mission of God Almighty. We're very opinionated, and rightfully so. There are some great Christians who firmly believe that everybody needs to wear a mask. That's fine. There are other Christians who are adamant that masks don't do any good and nobody ought to wear them. Okay. There are some people who are so adamant that everybody has to be vaccinated. Everybody's got to get that shot. And if that's you, okay. There are other brothers and sisters and they're adamant the other way and they want to tell the government where to stick their shot right I mean there are people all over the spectrum on what needs to happen and all of this cannot be a test of fellowship within the church we cannot allow this to be divisive within the body of Christ yet we look back over 16 months and what has happened in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ not just in this community and this state in this country but all throughout the world because it's so prominent that just about anything can divide God's people. And here, what's so refreshing is that in Nehemiah chapter 8, 50,000 people stand as one man. Now, what are they standing upon? What are they appealing for? They are clamoring for the Bible. They are clamoring for the word of God to be read to them and explained to them. In other words, they want Ezra to preach the word of the Lord. As Ezra stands up to preach, they say, preach it, preacher, which is like telling a pit bull sick him. I mean, the, Ezra's up there and he's proclaiming it, he's explaining it, he's illustrating it, he's applying it, and the people of God are saying, amen, amen, lifting holy hands, falling down on their faces to the ground in complete and utter worship. 50,000 people strong. They're standing as one person. They are united. They are clamoring for the word of God. The one thing that unites them is the word of God and the God of the word. Because they understood that how we respond to the word of God reveals how we regard the God of the word. Now the best I can reimagine this scene is that Nehemiah said, let's meet at the water gate. Now we've talked before about the various gates that surrounded the sacred city of Jerusalem. Watergate has nothing to do with the former president of the United States of America. Watergate has everything to do with a particular gate that was entry point into the marketplace. Now, Nehemiah was very strategic by placing this Bible conference at the Watergate. You might think that he would put it at the Sheep Gate. That would make a whole lot of sense. The Sheep Gate was located right beside the temple. 
It's a place where the sheep were housed for sacrifice. It would make sense if you're going to have a religious conference to have it near a religious building. It would make sense to have a religious conference near a religious building, to have it there at the sheep gate, very accessible for people to come and to gather. It's very broad. It's very open. They can come. They're right there at the temple. It makes a whole lot of sense to have a Bible conference at a church. But Nehemiah said, you know, the Bible It has something to say to the church, but it also has something to say to the culture. The scripture should be proclaimed in the sanctuary, but it also should be proclaimed in the streets. So Nehemiah had this summit Bible conference in the corridor of commerce, right there in the marketplace. For the occasion, they built a wooden platform It was elevated, I don't know how high, but it was rather high, high enough so that everybody could see Ezra as he stood to read and preach God's word. The best I can tell, this is the first example of a pulpit in the Bible. We are told that that platform, it must have been sturdy because Ezra stood there with 13 of his closest preacher friends. Now, if preachers in those days looked anything like preachers in this day, those boys were hefty. So it had to be very sturdy. So the platform was sturdy. It was strong enough to hold 13 preachers and Ezra. Beyond that, it would appear to me that what's described in Nehemiah chapter 8 is a dream for every preacher. And for some church members, it's a nightmare. Because the sermon lasted six hours. Six hours. From daybreak until noon. From 6 a.m. until 12 noon. For six hours, Ezra and the boys read the scripture and they preached. This is every preacher's dream. To be able to stand up and proclaim God's word for six hours and ain't nobody getting bored. This is the preacher's dream. And for some church members, this is a nightmare. You say, please pinch me. Surely it won't last six hours. It will feel like six hours, but certainly it won't be six hours, right? I mean, this in this moment, they were proclaiming God's word word from break of dawn all the way till 12 noon and it would appear to me that nobody did get bored nobody said this is a waste of my time no they seemed to be pretty eager for this that when it was over they actually wanted to hear more you never heard junior pull on mom's coattails hey ma how long's he gonna go? You didn't see a teenage boy constantly looking at his wrist, smacking his Apple Watch, just wondering, when is this gonna be over? There was no middle-aged woman who said, I, I wonder, what should we have for lunch today? Because I know my husband and my children are gonna be hungry. What should we do? Where should we go? It would appear that there, were, there was no elderly gentleman who dozed off to sleep only to then tell Ezra in the back of the church house uh, that was a great sermon and the reason I fell asleep it was because of my medication it causes drowsiness I mean you didn't get any of that because everybody was on the edge of their seat they were eager they were ready they were willing to hear and when Ezra stood up and when he opened the book everybody stood 
If you've ever uh, asked yourself, preacher, why? Over the last six and a half years, do we always stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's word? The biblical prescription is found in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5. That as the preacher of God stood up to open the word of God, the people of God stood up in reverence. They were standing there, they were eager, they were willing, they wanted to hear God's word being read to them, explained to them, preached to them, and illustrated for them, and applied properly to their life. In other words, they wanted the preacher to preach. And this seems to be the portrait. In in addition to all of this, there were 13 other preachers, the Bible calls them Levites, They were scattered among the crowd. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? There's no amplification system. How can 50,000 people hear one preacher? Now, I think that those other 13 preachers were like uh, satellite campuses all throughout the city. If you do the math, every Levite had a congregation of about 3,000, 3,500 people. And he was communicating. Hey, did you hear what he said? Do you understand what he's saying? Let me tell you what he's reading. Let me tell you what that means. And I think the Levites were on the same page as the priest. And as Ezra proclaimed, the Levites knew what was coming. And so they just kind of repeated the word of God that was handed down to them. And God's word scattered all throughout the city. So that all 50,000 heard the same message. And they responded appropriately. There are a lot of great definitions of biblical preaching that have been handed down throughout the ages. But the one that I have an affinity towards that I gravitate to was the one given to us by John R.W. Stott. It is John Stott who said biblical preaching is opening the inspired text with such faithfulness and sensitivity so that God's voice is heard and God's people know how to obey. That's biblical preaching. The job of the biblical preacher is to open up the inspired text. It starts with a passage of scripture. The sermon is text driven. So the biblical preacher starts in the Bible. The biblical preacher opens up the inspired text. He does not give meaning to the text. He just exposes the meaning that's already inherent in the text because the text can't mean today something it never meant when it was first written. So the biblical uh, preacher opens up the inspired text with such faithfulness, faithfulness to God, faithfulness to the text, so that the biblical preacher does not communicate half-baked ideas of a dim-witted preacher. You don't come to hear my opinion. You come to hear the very voice of God. You don't come to hear my comments. You want to know, thus saith the Lord. So biblical preaching is opening up the inspired text with such faithfulness to God and to the text and sensitivity, sensitivity to the people. The preacher has to know his audience. He has to know to whom he speaks. He has to know something about them what they're going through, what they're experiencing. And he has to be sensitive because sometimes the word of God can be a hammer and sometimes it can be medicinal salve. So the preacher has to know when to apply the hammer and when to apply the ointment. So there's gotta be sensitivity to the people so that 
God's voice is heard. The biblical preacher understands that the God who spoke still speaks. We don't come and worship a dead God. We don't come and worship a mute God. We come and worship a God who has something to say. And the biblical preacher just puts a megaphone on the very voice of God, the word of God, and just echoes what God has said. So, so the biblical preacher says, this is what God says. This is who he is. This is how we ought to live. And so God's people hear the very voice of God. In fact, the Protestant reformers went so far as to say that the biblical preacher, when he does it correctly, the actual preaching moment is a continuation of the very word of God so that God's voice is heard and God's people know how to obey because the sermon's not over after the last amen. The sermon is over when God's people begin to apply it in their life because the purpose of preaching a message is not for information, nor is it even for inspiration. But the goal of the biblical preacher to proclaim the message of God is transformation so that you and I will be transformed in obedience to the word of God and the will of God over our lives. So biblical preaching is opening up the inspired text with such faithfulness and sensitivity so that God's voice is heard and God's people know how to obey him. Friends, this is what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 8. It's a classic example of the proclamation of God's word. It's a great illustration of the centrality of the scripture over the life of the believer. So that God's word is spoken and we hear the very voice of God and we respond in obedience so that we know who God is and what he expects of us and how he wants us to live our lives. This is biblical preaching. This is what Ezra did. This is what uh, the friends of Ezra did. This is what the Levites did. They proclaimed, and the people were attentive. You know they were attentive because they obeyed. So it begs the question, how attentive are you to the proclamation of God's word? I'm not asking are you able to stay awake every week, Sunday to Sunday, in a 40-minute sermon? I'm not asking that. I'm asking, do you hear the very voice of God? Do you hear, thus saith the Lord? Do you hear God's word echoed from this podium, from this platform? And you hear God's voice, and you realize this is who God is. This is how he wants me to live. And then you do your very best by the Spirit's power to live in accordance with God's holy word. How attentive are you to the very word of God? Oh, I fear that there are far too many pulpits and far too many preachers in America today that are trying to mute and muzzle the very voice of God. They are putting words in God's mouth that God never did speak. Let it never be said here that we put words in God's mouth. Let us do our very best to always proclaim God's word with faithfulness to God in his text and sensitivity to God's people so that his voice is heard and his people know how to obey him 
and respond. Friend, how attentive are you to the word of God? Do you read it? Do you apply it? Do you devour it? Do you have a hunger for the holy? Do you have a savoring for the scripture? Do you have a calling for Christ's word in your life? These people in Nehemiah chapter 8, they were attentive to the word of God. Secondly, they responded with joy to the word of God. Not only were they attentive, but they were joyful. When they heard God's word, they responded in great joy. Now their joy was precipitated with grief. There was great sadness. They were weeping, crying. They were mourning. They were wailing. And why is this? I think the answer is because we are told that Ezra brought forth the book of the law, probably the Torah, probably the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Ezra began to preach about our great God, this great God who created the world out of nothing. He flung the stars into space. He scooped up the mountains and scooped out the valleys. I mean, this is the God of creation. And this God is so loving that even though humanity was completely sinful and they were so perverse that in the days of Noah, our God preserved Noah and his family in the midst of a worldwide flood. God should have just scrapped the whole thing if he wanted to. He could have just started over completely, but he said, no, I love humanity so much, I'm going to start over with a first family, with Noah and his family. And I'm sure that Ezra told the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. I'm sure that Ezra, as he proclaimed and as he preached, he, he, he talked about the sacrifice on Mount Moriah and how God provided the ram that was caught in the thicket. And Abraham sacrificed that ram in place of his son Isaac. And I'm sure that Ezra, as he stood there and said, our hope is the fact that God will provide the ram on a mountain one day in the future so that we don't have to die, so that we can live forever. And Ezra was pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure that as the people heard the story of the great Exodus event, that their, their spirit was stirred inside of them as they remembered how God so faithfully, so powerfully, so graciously, he led his children out of Egyptian captivity and nothing was gonna stop them, not even the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his armies behind them. For our God is the great provider. He parted the waters like a cross on dry ground and he gave them his very word that ours is a God who is so great, so awesome, so loving, that he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him personally. He does not want you to be in the dark. He doesn't want you to be confused on his identity or his expectations. So our God, our God etched in tablets of stone his very instructions with his very finger, gave them to the mediator, Moses himself, and Moses then communicated them to the people so that God's people knew who God was and what he expected. Not only did he get the top 10 list, but he gave all the stipulations and all the regulations and God was consistent that if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. And that discipline is because of my love for you, for I discipline those that I love. And God is so kind, he is so great, he is so compassionate. And when you get to Deuteronomy, God had to give the Ten Commandments again to his people. 
because a new generation was raised and they acted as if they did not know God. And once again, God could have just started all over, but instead, because of his deep love, he communicated his expectations. And guess what? They had not changed. What he expected in Exodus is the same thing he expected in Deuteronomy. His morality didn't change. His morality didn't evolve. I mean, he didn't just kind of acquiesce to the times. No, his standard was the same. And he gave in the second giving the very same laws, the very same stipulations that he gave the first time. And friends, I think that when the people of Nehemiah's day, when they heard how great and awesome God is, how holy he is, how perfect he is, how he does not change like shifting shadows, I think that when they, when they realized that they were just as sinful as their forefathers, that they had broken every commandment, that they had smashed every stipulation, just like the people in the days of Moses, they were just as guilty of being a sinner. I think, I think it broke them, and they wept, and they grieved. Friend, when was the last time your sin caused you to cry? See, we live in a culture, and we don't talk about sin in our culture. And we don't call each other sinners, even though that's who we are. You and I are completely and totally sinful. We are rebellious against the Lord. No, we live in a culture that tolerates our sin, accepts our sin, and in some cases even celebrates sin. And yet our God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And what he declares is right is always right. What he declares is true is always true. How he describes we ought to live is always how we ought to live. And when we realize that we don't measure up, when we break his standards, when we crush his commandments, it ought to crush our very spirits. When was the last time you wept over your wickedness? Sometimes we cry when we get caught. Sometimes we cry because of somebody else's sin. I'm not asking about somebody else's sin, and I'm not asking about you getting caught. I'm just asking, you standing before your holy God, and he reveals something that's wrong in your character, something that's wrong in your lifestyle. When was the last time that you wept bitterly? That's the picture we have here. God's word goes forth. It crushes God's people, and they weep, they confess, they repent. It gets to the point where Ezra and the preachers and the Levites, they say uh, on more than one occasion, listen, this is a sacred day. Let's, let's calm down. Ours is a God. Yes, he's a holy God, but he's a God of hope. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of second chances. He's a God of great joy. And so you need to respond with joy because this God has made himself known. This God has given you his word. This God has provided your salvation. What Ezra is talking about, he's looking forward to the coming of Christ. Here we are 2,000 years after Calvary and we look back upon the coming of Christ. But all of God's people are always forever looking to the cross of Calvary. For it's there at the cross of Calvary that we find joy, hope, and healing. It's only there. So Nehemiah says... Don't cry, don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Listen, I know you're sinful, I'm sinful, we all are sinful, that doesn't diminish our sin or the severity of it, but God, God has dealt sufficiently with our sin 
in the suffering servant, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So because of that, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that God has dealt sufficiently with your sin, eternally with your sin, giving you life, giving you the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon yourself, if you know that, then you have joy. Friend, we ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. Joyful because we know God, we've received his word which we cherish, We've been given his salvation, which is only made possible in Jesus Christ. He's opened our eyes unto his salvation. We realize that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, was buried, on the third day was raised from the dead. We have a home in heaven. We have purpose in living. We have a mission that God has called us to. We ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. We ought to say with the people of Nehemiah, amen, amen. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible has an exclamation point. When it's an exclamation point, that means get happy and get loud. Amen, amen. Because this is what God has done for us. We ought to be joyful. The word joy is repeated in our passage. We find it in verse 10, we find it in verse 12. You'll find it later in verse 17. In the Bible, joy is mentioned no less than 160 times. God's people are joyful people. In spite of circumstances, in spite of settings, we are joyful people. It was a psalmist who said, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It's Isaiah who says that when God's people return to Mount Zion, they will be given an everlasting crown of joy. It's Habakkuk who said, I rejoice in the Lord. Zephaniah who said, the Lord sings over me with joy. The angels proclaimed I bring you good news of great joy. When Philip went to the Samaritan town and preached Christ there, the book of Acts tells us that there was joy in that city. Paul says in his Philippian correspondence, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. It is James, the brother of our Lord, who says consider it pure joy even when you face trials of many kinds. And Jude, another brother of Jesus, said, now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you with great joy before God Almighty, our Savior. All throughout the Bible, God's people are joyful people. God's people have joy. Why do we have joy? Because we know God and we've been given his word and we understand his word and we know his salvation in Jesus Christ and we proclaim that salvation to a lost and dying world. We have joy. You remember what the children used to teach us? Remember that song? I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart, where? Down in my heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch, sit on attack. Ouch, sit on attack. If the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Sit on attack and stay. I don't know about you, but I like that song. I'm glad that the childhood memory came to my senses this past week. For I remember that because of Jesus, I ought to be a person who's attentive to God's word. I ought to be a person who is joyful to God's word. Because God has been good to me. I don't know about you, but God. 
God has been good to me. He should have killed me, but he called me. He should have slain me, but he has saved me. God should not have preserved me, but he has. God woke me up this morning. God has given me purpose in life. God has put a word on my mouth. God has given me the ability to think. God has put air in my lungs. God has done something great for me. So I've got to say to the devil, just sit on attack. I've got to say, listen, devil, you have no power over me. You have no sway over me because I have God on my side. I have his word in my hand. I have his son in my heart. I have his spirit that has wrapped all around me like saran wrap. I've got all of God that I ever need. And I've got God in my life. And so I've got attentiveness to the word of God and I've got joy in the word of God. I don't know about you, but it's time to get happy in the house for us to say, God, we love you. We thank you. We worship you. We rejoice in you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for help. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus. I thought you'd clap longer, but that's okay. God is so good to his people. So we ought to be attentive to his word. And we ought to be joyful because of his word. The people went home and they rejoiced. They ate, they drank, they gave some of their blessing to others who did not have anything to eat and drink. Always looking for an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ. And they walked out transformed. Friends, this is what we strive to do every Sunday. To stand up and say, thus says the Lord. Let the biblical preacher preach the word of God. Let the people of God hear the word of God, understand it by the Spirit's power, and may they obey it as they walk out. It would be tragic to hear something you do not understand. It'd be equally tragic to understand something you have no intention of obeying. Biblical preaching is opening the inspired text with such faithfulness and sensitivity so that God's very voice is heard and God's people obey. How we respond to the word of God reveals how we regard the God of the word. If you don't know Jesus as Savior today, it can be the day of your salvation. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, never confess your sins, your mess-ups unto him, today I implore you to come and believe upon him. If you are a believer, but you have a heavy heart, something that burdens you, the altar's open for you to come. If you need to join this congregation, please do so today, the moment the first note is struck. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for King Jesus. And now, King Jesus, will you please speak? Help your people to hear you. Help us to respond in obedience. Because you are a good God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.